Hello, I'm Adam Kaufman. Welcome to the Up To Podcast. Coming out of our first season, it became clear to me that our show with successful business owner and power broker, Umberto Fideli, resonated with so many of you. Given how genuine Umberto has been, even in his lessons learned from the mistakes made, I wanted to give our listeners more of a chance to increase their own knowledge from this experienced veteran of close to 40 years in business and in philanthropy and in politics. So we invited Umberto Fideli back into the studio for a special three-part mini-series. Umberto Fideli is the chairman and CEO of the Fideli Group, a full-service brokerage and consultancy working in 35 states. During Umberto's first appearance on Up2, we focused on his Italian heritage and more broad-based themes. This special series, we're going to delve more deeply into many of the lessons he's learned during his almost 40 years in business and investing. Umberto, welcome to Up2. Thanks for having me, Ed. Right now, why don't you talk a little bit about why you like investing? So many of the successful leaders who I know outsource this part of their lives because they're busy running their business, whatever their core business is. But what makes you like it so much? I find it fascinating, Adam, because it's it's taking a skill set where you need to know politics, economics. You need to know human nature. You need to know business. You have to know what's going on in the economy. There are so many variables, so there are so many challenges, and I find it very intriguing um, and I'd like to to learn. I like to study, and and to me, it's 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 the ultimate investment is a combination of human nature and business and economics. And there's the art part, and then there's the science part. And I just like taking what Charlie Munger calls the lattice of mental models, all your life experiences, and then using that to try to put it into action. Charlie Munger, the longtime vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway. Yes, I have a book written about him called Poor Charlie's Almanac. Yes, read it. It's hilarious, all of his whimsical observations. He's uh, brilliant. He's not lacking any confidence, but he's an absolutely brilliant guy. Have you ever met him? I've not met him, but I've read and watched probably every interview done, and I've read much about what he says, and he's very smart. Yeah, I hope we can find, like, the next generation Charlie Mungers, whoever he or they or she are, one of a kind. So tell us, how long have you been investing? Well, I started, I didn't have any funds to invest, but I had a tremendous interest in my early 20s. And at 25, I started doing some crazy things like options. It's very risky. Didn't do very well. How does a 25-year-old even know about options? Like, Who knows? It was pure gambling. And unfortunately for me, the first thing I did, it made a bunch of money. So I thought I knew what I was doing, and it was just pure luck. Kind and, of beginner's luck? Yes, and it didn't work out. And then I did something called uh, margin, where I took a big line of credit out from a bank and took that money and borrowed more money from the money I borrowed from the bank. And then we had something called the crash, October 19th, 1987. So, Could you borrow money at such a young age in today's regulated world? Like, that's great you were able to do that back then, but could that even be done now? Well, it's difficult, but what I did is I had a partner who was older and more successful. and He co-signed or? No, he just used our company line of credit, and I took a loan from a bank, quite sizable amount, and then took that money and invested that. This was in the August of August of 1987, and then the market crashed October 19th. I thought it was investing. I was actually gambling. There's a, there's a big difference. There definitely is. Do you remember the first company you invested in? Yes. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, I bought some options on a company called USU. I don't even think they're around anymore. And there was you know, all kind of rumors of a potential uh, takeover. Uh, I've never bought another option since. It's pure gambling. You have to figure out what to buy and when to buy it. What's and, an and option the, exactly? So you're buying an option on a price of a stock. And these were not 
these were not covered. So they're, they're, you're buying a stock, it's going to go up, and, and you have to predict when and how much, and then you're buying, and they expire over a period of time. So it, it's pure gambling, and, and they weren't covered, and so I've never done it again. Uh, but this was something I did earlier, which was probably a good lesson of what not to do. Hmm. And you weren't, like, involving your parents or a professional advisor. This was just your own pursuit. I was doing my own thing, as I typically do. I beat to my own drum. Well, what's your overall strategy with investing? I mean, you have another business that is operating all over the place. Separate from the Fidelity Group, what's your strategy with your your personal investing, if you're able to share that? Sure. I think you evolve uh, over time, and we're a work in progress. And I think uh, I'm now looking at the correlations of investment lessons and life lessons. And it's amazing that there is a positive correlation. Today, our strategy would be primarily looking for really, really high-quality companies, best-in-class, great, great quality companies. I used to be a you know, Graham Dodd, deep-value investor, uh, the gentleman that Warren Buffett learned for him, and, and that was one of my biggest mistakes. We actually studied 350 of our picks and looked at all of our mistakes and analyzed what, what we did wrong and why and how. And, and I know the three biggest things I did continuously over and over, most of them were one or two. Pareto's law works almost at everything in life. It's usually a small percentage of things. Pareto's law? Yes. What is that? Pareto's law is basically the 80-20 rule. But for instance, years ago, someone said, hey, 5% of your customers are going to be half your business. I said, I didn't believe it. Went back and 5% was two-thirds. I said 10% would be two-thirds. I didn't believe it. It was three-quarters. Um, Definitely. And so you know, 20% was 90%. Our smallest you know, uh, 20% was less than 1%. So it's the same with decisions. It's a small amount of decisions that are important. Warren Buffett has made most of his money on a handful of investments. Now, sometimes you don't necessarily know which ones are going to be the big big winners. Right. And, and so we went back and studied our mistakes. And, and we looked at 10 years of data, 350 picks. And my number one mistake over and over again is what's called a value trap. I bought things that are really, really cheap. They weren't necessarily good. But I got sucked into I couldn't I couldn't pass it up a great deal, and then you know we looked at our second mistake and that's believing projections. Eighty three percent of major acquisitions do not add value, according to a study in Columbia of over two thousand. And I believe projections because you don't see bad ones. So on private deals, I would tell you I never saw a bad projection. Right. Eighty three percent of the time in the public companies they mean well, but a lot of execution risk. And the third mistake was. I lost patience. And so my guys who analyzed the data said, I said, 80% of I, times that I left things alone, we'd be better off. And they said, no, about half the time selling was the right decision. So we went back and looked. I said, yes, it was the right decision selling because buying was the wrong decision. The other half the time I ran out of patience and it would have been right leaving it alone. So those were the three major mistakes over 10 years and 350 selections of, of public equities. Then we also studied what we did well. So I think it's important to learn your mistakes but also learn what you do well. So let's peel back the onion a little bit on, on the mistakes. There's a lot of good learning there. So one of them was projections. So the companies themselves forecast their future growth expectations or sales. And so you would follow those projections? Primarily where I got burned, Adam, is, is when there was a major deal and, and, and they're buying a company and they're gonna be doing this and doing that and doing this and integrating this and doing that and doing that and so forth. That's when we got in trouble believing all these things were going to happen. I believe the management thought those things were going to happen, but then things kind of happen. Sure. And, and the execution risk, if you will. Right. So the study showed, and that's why we do extensive research and studying and great investors and books and So you tests. reevaluate your prior decisions. 
Absolutely. A lot of in private investors don't take the time to do that. Professional investors do, but that's really impressive you do that. It's the same reason I go to confession. If you can't, if you can't analyze your mistakes and your faults and what you did wrong, how are you going to really improve as a person or an investor? So it's the same principle, and we looked at what we did wrong, and we believed these projections. Now, the study showed that the two situations that worked well on acquisitions where you could take cost out, cost synergies versus marketing synergies. Mm -hmm. It's easier to take cost out of a business than to grow it. Or tuck-ins. That's one of the reasons that the banks work, is that a bank that has... Acquire something small. Yeah, a bank that has a platform can take up to 50% of the cost out if they're already in that market. Mm -hmm. Half of the cost out. And right, so, so that's why it works. So cost synergies are a lot easier to execute than marketing synergies because a lot more things have to go right so these projections on deals that were going to happen, you buy this company because they're buying this and doing this. A lot this of excitement, yeah. A lot of excitement, a lot of interest. It's sexy, but eight out of 10 times, it doesn't happen. So projections was a common mistake in the analysis. Buying cheap stocks was your second one, I think you mentioned. So you would... The other way around, though, by, by far, value traps was number one by far. That was the biggest mistake. That's probably 80% of my mistakes were value traps. And the second biggest mistake would then be believing projections on deals and then third was giving up too soon, you know, where— Patience, it, it, lack of patience. Yeah. Let's stick with the value stocks. Our audience will relate to this. So you might follow a stock for a while, and you might say once it gets down to 38, and that's when we're going to buy. And you did that too often? Is that like the scenario we're talking about? Yeah, I, I find something that looked like it was such a deal. Okay, it was a great buy, price to book, uh, price to earnings, uh, whatever, you know. You know, we look at qual- qualitative and we look at quantitative factors. P.E. ratio. P.E. ratio, price to book, you know, price to earnings, price to cash flow, which all kind of numbers. But at the end of the day, if the business isn't a good business mm-hmm. and you just buy it cheap, Buffett refers to those as cigar butts. You got one puff. You got to figure when to get in, when to get out. They're called net nets. It's Graham Dodd. And so the hard way I've learned, you know what, if you buy a great business that has a durable, competitive, sustainable advantage. A moat, as he calls it. As a moat. You have some advantage. It's a good business. They have some type of advantage. And you have to discuss, all right, what is the advantage this business has? Why is it so good? Now, we like today what we call forever quality value growth compounders. Very hard to find and hard to find at a reasonable price. These are far less than 1%. Right. We like at least quality value growth, which are in the top 10 to 20%. Again, not easy to find and finding at a good value. I don't even know. Are we allowed to talk about like what types of companies would be in that category? Sure. We're not professional investors, so we guess no, we can no. talk about whatever we want. Yeah. No, there are certain companies that are just great businesses. Okay. So let me give you one that's a great business and a stock that we own, Visa. Mm. <clears throat> they don't take risk. Every time there's a transaction, they get a little piece off the top. And I don't care who you give a credit card to anywhere in the world. When they start shopping, Visa makes money. It's a big brand, a big moat. Mm. And a perfect example, Google. PayPal is another incredible company, right? Facebook. They're just incredible businesses where they have such advantage. They have scale. They have visibility. They have durability. They're just great, great businesses. Facebook, do you ever worry about, like, its attention right now from the government, or does that affect how you buy or or sell the the stock? In the short term, you might worry, but but we also, when we studied, Adam, the successes that we had after we studied the failures, which was more difficult, actually, because I was trying to look, is it a certain industry or is there a certain thing we did and what I found that we did very, very well with, when we took fear and uncertainty, which creates volatility, and all of a sudden people are afraid and they sell. 
And so when someone sells, someone's buying. But the more people are selling, the price goes down. More people are buying, the price goes up. And what we did well with was fear and uncertainty that created volatility. Volatility can be your friend, and volatility could be an opportunity. And I can give you plenty of examples. So we bought Facebook last year in the peak of all the the crisis about what was happening all the issues. The stock got, got beat up and we bought it and we kept on buying it down, kept on buying it down. Because long term, you know, by the reading and the research and also our opinion was long term, the young people who are using it and all the various, you know, disruptors that they own, they didn't really care about what the politicians had to say. Right. The advertisers were looking at as long as people were using it, they would keep on advertising it. So in the short term, there's a lot of noise. Now, it, potentially they could hurt them. But in the long run, I still felt that, that they had such a great business model, such a great advantage, such scale. Moat. They definitely have a moat. Big time. And it would be a winner. And I looked at it as a buying opportunity. I can give you plenty of examples. So that's where we really did very well. Fair and uncertainty. I like that. So would you consider like the current Boeing situation similar to what you did when you purchased Facebook a year ago during their problems? Yes, it could be. Now, it's not one that we happen to own. Now, Boeing is a great, great company. and It's a big, big company. My only concern about a company like Boeing sometimes is if a company is so big, can they keep on growing and keep on growing and keep on growing? Facebook has the opportunity to grow and Visa has the opportunity to grow. Google has the opportunity to grow and PayPal has the opportunity to grow. So as big as they are, the market is so big that they haven't reached saturation. So sometimes if a business is so big Mm -hmm. and you're thinking, how many more planes can they sell? How much more growth potential can there be? In the age of Lockheed Martin, just as big almost. Yeah. Now, so Boeing isn't one that we we own or one that we even looked at, so I can't tell you a lot about it. But, but, But I like businesses that have incredible growth potential that are high quality, that are a decent value. And I look at something called the peg ratio, price to earnings growth. If they can earn, you know, if they can grow much faster than than the PE ratio you're paying. Again, you have to be careful there because look at the projections. But if you look at the past success and see, you know, tremendous growth, right? We did the same thing. We looked at 130, 140 of our bank picks. I still want to tackle um, the common mistake number three, a lack of patience. Because I think that's a common problem a lot of us deal with the emotion of watching CNBC or something we learn in the moment. So what did you learn about your lack of patience when you analyzed back 10 years? I think it has to be, you have to have major conviction. So you have to really say, I like this business long-term. So Warren Buffett would say, if you don't like it for 10 years, why would you like it for 10 minutes? So so you have to look long-term and say, is this something that I want to buy and put away long-term? And, and, and he looks at his time horizon as forever. Now, mm-hmm. there's no such thing as forever, but for a long time. And I think sometimes when you're buying something to get in and buying something to get out, then you have to figure out when to get in, when to get out. Somebody one time said investing is like the bar of soap. The more you touch it, the smaller it gets. So, so Buffett will say Wall Street makes money on activity. Investors make money on inactivity. So the more things you do, the more mistakes you make. But if you have great convictions, and you really like the business, and you've really studied the business, and you've read a lot about it, and you read reports, and you look at things and say, this is a great business. I like it long-term. Right. When it goes down, you get excited because then you say, guess what? I can buy some more on sale. When you're trying to figure out when to get in, when to get out. So now I'm not interested in buying things for trades anymore. I had a period of time where I did 1,000 trades in three years. That's a lot of practice. I wouldn't suggest wow. it. So that's almost day trading. Well, we were pretty active. We're doing a lot of trades. And I didn't know if I, I did like the activity, but it's not the right way to be an investor. But you do learn a lot. You're not going to learn a lot unless you do a lot of something. 
when I was preparing to talk to you about this today, I, I saw somewhere that you wrote about investing, time is your friend, but on the other hand, timing the market is not a good idea. It is true. So if you look at the statistics and you bought a quality company, and if you held it for 10 years, your chances of making money go into the high 90%. At five years, you're at the 80%. So the longer you keep things, typically, if they're high quality and they're good businesses, they tend to work. Now, it doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be a great investment, mm -hmm. but time is your friend. The magic of compounding is incredible. But you have to look at, do they have good return on tangible capital? More, more so than just equity, because if you're leveraged, you can have a higher return on equity. But you have to look at it. Is it a good business? How are their financials? You, know, you look at qualitative factors. You look at quantitative factors. You come up with your criteria. You come up with a checklist. You develop a process. These are things I never used to do, by the right, way. Right, right, right. But these are the things you know now that you wish you knew when you were younger. Back to that question. Oh, I made, I made so many mistakes because I was, you know, what I was doing is I was just trying to do things before I knew what I was even doing. So I was just doing things, right, and just, just taking shots without even knowing what I was doing. When I got into investing a little bit, my friend who was a professional investor told me, maybe I was like in my late 20s, just look around you, like see what people are buying. It was a very untechnical bit of advice, but it was helpful. What stores are people going to in the malls back when there were malls? What kind of cars are people buying? What commercials are you seeing the most on TV? So I, I began from a practical standpoint, like kind of like consumer analysis, wasn't really analysis, but consumer observation. Do you think that's a helpful way to look at things too? A little bit, but that was Peter Lynch's theory right. in, in, in the book, One Up, One Fidelity. Up. Fidelity. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's with Magellan, incredibly successful. It's one thing to look at, but it can be a fad too. So what you got to be careful of, is it a long-term advantage or is it a fad? So when you're looking at certain stores, you know, and my friend said, oh, no, no, that, that's going to be a brand. They said, let me take some pictures out and show you something called leisure suits. And I started laughing. I said, well, they, they thought those were cool, right? So, so you know, there's a difference. So, so, for instance, you talked about fads or, or, or looking around. I, there's two retail stocks I like, one I own and one I wish I own. And the one I own is TJ Maxx. And we bought it when, when Whole Foods got bought out by Amazon. Retail stocks got killed. Real estate stocks got killed. And we said, all right, what retail stock is not going to be as affected as much? They're going to build 1,000 new stores. You know, they have home brands, they have different things, they have different products, they have you know, over a thousand buyers, tens of thousands of items. They're not dependent on one brand. And the other one that I wish I owned that I never did is Costco. They have a great model. I love Costco. They also have that recurring income where you pay a membership fee. So they have that recurring income so then they can sell their merchandise at a much less of, less of a markup. Speaking of brands, back to my simple way of looking at potential stock buys. Do you know the shoes Vans? I've I heard of them, but I don't know. Yeah. But when I was in high school, they were really popular with like the surfer or skater crowd. And I was in high school 30 years ago. We have three kids, three teenagers. All of them still wear Vans 30 years later. So just sitting here, I'm looking up, why have I never invested in Vans or whoever? Owned, I didn't know if Nike owns Vans now. VF Corporation. But like that's an example of a brand that has withstood this test of time. It could be. But sometimes I have to stay away from things where I'd say it could be good, Adam. But I just can't tell. But if it's lasted 30 years, isn't there a chance, isn't it de-risked a little bit that it could last another 30 years? Yes. Obviously, the more time goes by. But then on the other hand, is it, is it worn out or is there another brand that's going to take them over? Buffett will tell you to stay in your circle of competency and not expand your circle. Just have the discipline to stay. The problem with that, it sounds good to think as a baby. As a baby, my circle of competency 
There's only a couple of things I know how to do naturally. So if I stayed within my circle competency, I, I would still be uh, drinking milk, right? Very limiting. So at some point, you'll also have to gain knowledge and say, hey, the world is changing a little bit. And, and, and remember, Buffett also talks about the two sins, and this comes really from the Catholic Church, the sins of omission and the sins of commission. He'll tell you the biggest mistakes he made weren't the things he invested in that didn't work. They're things he should have done that he never did. Did. Mm. He should have invested in Amazon and didn't. He should have invested in Microsoft. Yeah, he was not an early adopter in technology. No, he just said, no, it's not my circle. I don't do it. It's not my circle. I don't do it. Well, but Microsoft, if he would just invest in Microsoft when he became friends with, with Bill, B- Gates. Bill Gates, yep. it's probably crushed all the other stocks that he currently owns. When he ended up donating the large majority of his net worth to the Gates Foundation, that was a page and a half long letter. That was the largest transfer of money in U.S. history on a page and a half. No contract. Unbelievable. I don't, have you ever been, by the way, to uh, Berkshire Hathaway's annual meeting? I've gone once. I have not. I've watched it, watched it live on my iPad, but I've actually never attended one. But he's very open about his mistakes yes. and sharing them in the annual report and even when he gives talks. And he'll tell you it's the things he should have done that he didn't do that were his biggest mistakes. Just kind of like life. It isn't the things you necessarily try to do that you mess up on. It's the things you maybe you regret that you should have done that you didn't do. And that's why, to me, there, there, there's a fascination of life lessons and investment lessons. Can you think of a particular stock you wish you did buy, just as the Buffett not buying Microsoft example, something you wish maybe you had the opportunity to and you pass? Like in my world of venture capital, my business partner, he calls this the anti-portfolio, things we missed. There's so many of them. So Amazon is one I should have bought. So you, you considered it early on and you said no? Hey, of course, I'm thinking it's too expensive. Uh, it's, it's, well, I remember the more books they sold, the more money they lost for the first few years. Yes, because they were trying to build their business up. Right. But, but that's one I should have bought. Microsoft is one I should have bought. Costco. You mentioned that, yeah. It's a great company, the great model, great management. I mean, it's just, it's a, a real winner. There are so many like that that I should have bought that I didn't. I didn't understand technology. So I was just, I said, well, I don't understand it. So I'm not going to invest in it. Well, that's not true today. I still don't understand it, but I've invested significantly in it because things are changing faster, better. Uh, we actually now have uh, around 26 or 27 high growth platform disruptors that I think are going to be the leaders, but I can't tell you for sure. Some of them already are the leaders. So we bought Facebook and Google when they were out of favor mm-hmm. through fear and uncertainty mm-hmm. or Visa, maybe when it was a little bit out of favor or PayPal. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's easier for us to do. You know, looking at something new and trying to project into the future. Uh, we studied uh, hundreds of successful companies, uh, my young guys who've actually helped me, and we came up with what we call f- factors. What were the things that existed consistently where it worked. So you have, an, you have an inside team. You keep saying we. So you have hired people to help you do the research? I have a couple of really, really smart young guys who just read every book, read everything you can think of, and, and they help me analyze, help me. Uh, sometimes I read a report and I said, let me drink another bottle of caffeine, water another cup of coffee because it's kind of complicated. Mm-hmm. And they can read something like that and then give me, here's what they're saying, um, you know, Do you ever people, like delve into an industry and say, let's attack this new in, uh, virtual reality or just start reading about it or do you just react to companies or do you ever look you know, more broadly into an industry? Well, right now, in the last few years, an area that I've been fascinated with, even though I, I'm not technically competent at all, I'm just fascinated by these software cloud-based disruptors, the ones that are, are, are going to change the way things are done. 
So, for instance, I can give you an example if you Please, want. Please, yeah. Um, one we recently bought, and I think it's going to be a big winner, but I don't know for sure because it's still new, is, is DocuSign. You know, the chairman's from, well, the longtime CEO and chairman, he just resigned, is from Cleveland. Yeah, from Rocky River, I heard, right? Keith Kroc, yes. He went to Rocky River High School, and he's, believe it or not, now the Undersecretary of State for the United States. Well, they're eight times bigger in their space then the second biggest company, which is one we also own called Adobe, great company, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, does it have the visibility now, right? Now people are starting to say DocuSign this. So it's a dollar to DocuSign versus 30 or $50 to have it sent by express mail. So easy. It's so user-friendly. Now people say, well, other people might do it. What's their advantage? So these aren't easy, but the scalability of some of these companies. So Dropbox is another one. People say, well, Microsoft does that and Google does that, right? But they work with Salesforce and they work with Adobe and they, and, and they work. And so the potential of some of these. So you think a company like Dropbox, they have right now a half a billion people that use it and only two and a half percent of the people are paying. In the last three years, they've doubled the number of paid. If they double again in five years, not three years, these numbers are so enormous, the scalability is incredible. Now, are they going to be the winners? We're betting they are. We're betting DocuSign is. If you wait till they are for sure the winners, then they are so expensive, then you can't even make sense. These things don't even trade at a multiple earnings. They trade at a multiple sales because of the potential. I don't know if you've been out to San Francisco lately, but the newest, largest building in San Francisco is the Salesforce building. Incredible company. That company is just buying so many private companies. We've actually had in our venture fund uh, a company acquired by Salesforce. I think they had like $4 in sales. It was a cloud enterprise business like you're talking about called Relate IQ. I think they bought them for like $400 million and only... Four million in sales. They just bought a big company in the last month or two. Yeah, and the symbols are DATA Tableau. Uh, they they are the Salesforce is an incredible company, um, and they're integrating. Um, it's one we own. It's one in our basket along with Facebook and Adobe and PayPal. These are great companies. You know the old adage unrelated to investing: you have a big house, there's always somebody with a bigger house. You have a cool car, there's always someone with a cooler car. You're a spectacular member of the Cleveland Clinic Board. You raise a lot of money. Mark Benioff, the Salesforce chairman, he's already donated $100 million to UCSF Medical Center, and he's already committed another $100 million. Yeah, he's been an incredibly successful guy, a very talented guy. But the lesson there, Adam, and then life lessons, not investment lessons, yeah, yeah. life's about a contribution, not a comparison. Good. Human nature is we want to compare. It becomes passive-aggressive. And it's a road to hell. So I know you used to be feisty. Like, this is a very enlightened viewpoint you have now. Like, how did you come to this conclusion about not comparing yourself to others? It's a work in progress. So years ago, I'm in Alaska on a YPO trip. and Young President's Organization. Young President's. Now you get kicked out because when you turn 50, you get kicked out. Right. Rocking chair. And so at 59 today, uh, we're in another group. Is the uh, more mature version of that group. But I was there with my entire family. So it was right around 19, 20 years ago, and there were 35 speakers. And one of them, I was there with my good friend Bob Stein. At the time, Bob was chairman and CEO of Jerry Mart. And it said, Robert Spitzer, SJ, The Journey of Excellence, Four Secrets of Happiness. He's a, he's a priest, right? Well, I said to Bob, I said, Bob, SJ, you know what that stands for? He goes, no. I said, Bob, I've never seen a Jesuit priest, a rabbi, a, pre- a preacher, at a young president's event. Right. So we went to hear him speak. For the next hour, we were mesmerized. He was the most brilliant 
speaker I'd ever heard. He's got an undergraduate degree in accounting. He has a master's from the Gregorian Institute in Rome, mm-hmm. Divinity. He's got a doctorate in philosophy. He was president of Gonzaga. Uh, he's a consultant, and he's worked with little companies like Costco, Boeing, Caterpillar. Companies we've talked about. Yeah. Caterpillar. I think you introduced me to him at a Legatus event, that Catholic CEO organization. Well, today I'm on his board. It's ironic. I met him in Alaska, and I went up to him to speak, and, and he is an amazing individual. So he taught you this lesson of not comparing yourself to others? He goes through different secrets of happiness, a journey of excellence. He has a program that takes 20 hours just to be introduced to it. It's hundreds and hundreds of the greatest books, Covey, Seven Habits of Successful People, uh, Aristotle, Plato, Man's Search for Meaning. And in this process, they go through, and it's, you know, there's some philosophy, but there's also some studies going backwards. Mm-hmm. And, and it's one of the things that he really shares if, if you are into level two comparison game, as he calls it, level one would be uh, eating candy cookies. The problem is you, you need more of it and you need more of it. <clears throat> level two, he said, this is where most of you young presidents are. This is what he said in the talk. Power controls success. Someone's going to be more successful. Someone's made more money. Someone's given more money away. Always. So if you're into that, it's passive aggressive. If you understand that life is about a contribution, not a comparison, men and women for others, which is a, a Jesuit motto and somewhat of a Christian belief and, and also, you know, somewhat of a Jewish belief. You go back to the Old Old Testament. Mm-hmm. But it's also also in, in a book that our mutual good friend Bobby Campana shared with us one. Yes. You know, have we gone from success to significance? The book Halftime. Mm-hmm. And, and all of a sudden say, have you gone from success to significance? Okay, so you can make a bunch of money. In, you know, but if you made a difference in someone else's life, if you look at the last book written by one of the great business writers today that does extensive research, Jim Collins, mm-hmm. great by choice. Mm-hmm. And these are books he writes, Build the Last. Good to uh, Great. Good to Great, How the Mighty Fail or How the Mighty Fall. Yep. It's not just someone says, you, you like his writing. I said, no, I like his research. Because it's based on research, not just his opinion. Yes. In the last book he wrote, Great by Choice, his conclusion was the same conclusion as Mother Teresa. She said, people wait till they become really rich or powerful to make a difference. Then I can do this and then I can do that. And she goes, you can do ordinary things in an extraordinary way. I know you live that. You you say that all the time. And I can see it in your business. I can see it in social events. It's, it's, a, it's a great mantra to have. I want to go back to something you said about not comparing. I was teasing you a little bit about how much Benioff gave to UCSF. For me, I I like running. And I would get so depressed in races, whether it's a little 5K or a marathon or anything in between, I would get depressed at how many people would finish ahead of me. I mean, it really bothered me. Hundreds, thousands of people. And one day, somebody said to me, you know, don't compare yourself to everyone in front of you. Think about everyone who are in the houses, like not even out there running with you. So that, that helped me a little bit. But I'm still comparing, I guess, which isn't good. It's, it's, it's not good, but it's, it's part of human nature. And, and envy is a horrible, horrible thing. Yes. And it's an unfortunate part of human nature. Mm-hmm. I would share with you this. You're ultimately, when you're running, you're competing against yourself. That's how it should be looked at. You're right. And in life, 
You need to become the best version of who you can become. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter about anybody else in front of you, anybody else behind you. They're going to be more successful people, people who gave more money. People with more hair. People with more hair who ran faster. And, And at some point, you just have to sit there and say, am I making a difference? You have that opportunity to do that every day. So, so Mother Teresa's doing things in an ordinary way, extraordinary way. Same conclusion in Jim Collins' book, Great by Choice. These are ordinary businesses that did things in an extraordinary way. Absolutely. Look at the great football teams. The best football teams when you're watching on Sunday and the worst football teams. They have some unique plays that nobody else, they invented some, some new plays, or is it great execution? And team, like the recent team. NBA finals, probably the team with the most stars did not win but they won the Nash, the NBA championship. It's the execution, Toronto. right? It's, it's ordinary things in an extraordinary way, be it teamwork, right, or being you know, super good at service or being very good at various things, right? The, the comparison game's a bad game to get into. It's, it's, a great, it's a great point, and I'm going to try to remember for my own self, you know, what you're saying here. Thank you, Umberto, for coming in today. Can we do this again? I'd love to. Because I just feel like there's so much more we could talk about, and I look forward to the next time we sit down together. But for now, thank you so much. Thank you, Adam. Umberto really got me thinking after today's conversation. These are my key takeaways. Investing in a good company is more important than just investing in a cheap stock. Time horizon. How long you have in front of you plays a big part in how you invest. Timing the market is not a good idea, however. Even professionals can't beat the averages. Umberto talked about the sins of omission. We can learn a lot by looking backwards at maybe opportunities that we passed on or decisions we chose not to take. And finally, perhaps most importantly, don't fall into the trap of comparing yourself to others. Life is about contribution not comparison. I'm Adam Kaufman, and I'd like to thank you for listening to part one of our special mini-series with Umberto Fidelli. I sincerely hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I encourage you to subscribe to Up To on your favorite podcast app, or you can visit uptofoundation.org. Up To is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, and a special thanks go out to our producers, Sarah Wilgrub and Bridget Coyne, and the audio engineer, Dave Douglas. Thank you so much for listening to the Up To podcast.